the National Archives podcast series, Locating London's Wartime Past, www.bombsite.org, presented by Dr. Catherine Emma Jones. I thought I would first start by just giving you a bit of background. I'm actually a geographer and digital mapper by specialism. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Portsmouth, and I try and encourage my undergraduates to use mapping and to build up a love and an interest in mapping as much as they can. And this project really came about as part of a teaching tool that I wanted to develop to actually engage the students in historical geography and understanding how that has shaped the way that cities form and emerge even today. And so a bomb site project came about. And I want to speak to you today about the project and how we really developed it without going into too much technical detail and who, who it's really aimed at. The project team minus the newest member. Myself, I'm the project director and obtained the funding from our sponsors who are JISC and they fund um, infrastructure and higher education projects. Andrew, who's the map archivist here, he was one of the specialist experts on the project, along with Yasha, who designed the graphic design of the website. After much discussions with us, I think she managed to keep her hair from tearing it out when I changed my mind. <laughs> then we have Dan, who built our augmented reality application, which I'll talk to you in more detail, and Patrick, who was the technical lead and web developer on the project. And also a special mention to Ali, Alex and Felix, who were the students and PhD researchers on the project, but without their help, we would never have managed to finish. So our project partners, it's the a project between the University of Portsmouth and the National Archives, and of course, funded by JISC, so it wouldn't have been possible without JISC. And it, the project was funded through their e-content program, so it's about clustering different types of information together and linking lots of different information, but not really about digital digitisation. And that will become apparent later on in the talk. So a big thank you to JISC. I'll just mention them one more time. Thank you. <laughs> OK, so let's give you a brief overview about the project. Basically, it's mapping World War II bomb census in London between the 7th of October 1940 and June 1941. And this is because there's a particular period of maps that correspond to this period, and it roughly approximates Blitz. I know it doesn't actually equal, but it, this is the period that we have the maps available for. And it represents the night bombing from piloted aircrafts. These maps were previously only available in the reading rooms of the archives. So there's a big accessibility issue Unless you're able to physically come to the archives and ask to see the maps, you're unable to explore them for whatever purposes you have. We wanted to link in other information, so we wanted to actually add some context, not just present a map with points that represent the locations of the bombs, but to build in other contextual information. So we've tried, where possible, to take qualitative data so we've taken information from the BBC2, um, the BBC People's War Project, where they collect memories of people's experiences in London. So we have the memories from the BBC project. 
We also have taken where possible, where there are reuse licenses from the Imperial War Museum, we have some images that uh, really give a visual description of what London was like at that time, along with the memories. It really brings to life a time, a chaotic time, and traumatic time in London's history. And, and all that information helps the students to actually start to learn not just about spatial patterns, which is what maps can produce, but also some of the other contextual information behind it. And we want to make the maps available to students, academics and citizen researchers, like the people who use the archives. And we wanted to make it user-friendly so that you don't need any specialist skills to engage the project. Basically, what we want to do is go from this, where we have all sorts of different documents. The information on this table represents one um, incident towards the end of the war in Catford. So all this information represents one falling bomb. And we have sketch maps. We have sketch maps with annotations that then link into photographs. We have BC4 forms that document the size of the bomb, the number of casualties, the number of fatalities. You have the bomb maps which represent the locations that all the bombs fell. So if you can imagine that there's a whole huge volume of data that kind of when I saw this I was speechless and I'm not often speechless because it's just we've documented everything in meticulous detail and actually what we've done in the bombsite project I don't think even represents 1% of the information that's here in the archives. I can't imagine that it does. So what we've done is shown that we can move from something like this where we've had to select one aspect and being a geographer we've chosen the bomb census maps and we want to move towards a responsive mode website which basically means because we're, we're engaging users from different backgrounds, citizens, academics and students, we don't know what IT infrastructure that they have. So they might be using a desktop computer, they might be using a tablet computer, they might be using their iPhone or their Android phone, or they might have a really enormous monitor or quite a small monitor. So we wanted to make sure that the website is developed in what is called responsive mode, that basically it shrinks or enlarges and it rearranges the different features on the page, so the map and the descriptions and the pictures, and it rearranges them according to the size of the monitor that you have, because otherwise you have to scroll around and it becomes really annoying. And then we also wanted to develop an Android mobile app to actually allow the students and other people who are interested to engage in their surroundings and engage in the history of the streets in which they're walking. So you'll be able to point to your mobile phone in the street and actually have a view of the street with the bomb location projected onto that view. And that's a way to kind of encourage the students to start thinking about field observations and what they're seeing and what's happened in the streets. So we wanted to move from this which is all paper-based, into a more digital environment that's much more easily accessible. And so before we do that with computer projects, it's really, really important to actually think about who your users are. And in this instance, we, had, we thought that there would be three, three users who are, would find the project quite interesting. 
So we have students in higher education, but also I've found out that actually schools are using the website as well. So, and what we have to remember with the students is that I was quite surprised when I started lecturing. I thought that this was the generation that are quite tech technologically savvy, but actually they know about social networking, they know about desktop applications, but they are, at least the students that I teach, they are overwhelmed if they have to face anything that's too complex from a technology perspective. And a lot of the digital mapping software that we use is quite overwhelming the first time you open these software and you see all these buttons and you don't know how even to open an image and start looking at that image and how you then convert that to a map. So we wanted to make sure that they would have something that they wouldn't feel overwhelmed with, that they would find easy to engage with. And likewise for researchers and citizen researchers. So when we think about people who are outside of the university, we have to think about what kind of computers that you have and build our application according to what computers you might have because it's all very well as an academic I have quite a high spec laptop that's really powerful that can do lots of processing but other people don't have that so we need to make sure that our website could actually work on a low spec computer as well as a high spec computer and that way we can make sure that we meet the needs of our three different types of users so we then had to think about the challenges our users face, so what problems that they have to encounter before and why. Well, actually, we've discussed this already, finding and accessing the maps. If you haven't used the archives before and you come here for the first time, it can take some time to actually find the information that you want. You want to turn the maps into digital data. So with historical mapping projects, what happens quite often is that the maps are, are scanned, so you take the paper map, you scan it, and you have what is essentially a digital photograph of that map. And then what you want to do is move it to the next step, which is to make that map queryable and to make it with a spatially referenced underlying coordinate system, which basically turns your digital photograph into an interactive map. And then once you've got your interactive map, you then want to be able to extract the data and to use that data to start answering spatial queries. So how many bombs fell in this particular borough? What's the impact of the bombs across London? And you can start building up questions like this. And then, of course, we want to implement the technical solutions. So if you're thinking about an undergraduate that wants to build all this, they don't have the technical skills. So we wanted to make sure that we could build something where our users could use it without having any technical background whatsoever. So there's no specialist expertise in digital mapping required. So once we've understood these, we developed some user stories. And this is just an example. And this is good practice in human-computer interaction when you're developing software projects. So I have a student for... Her name is, is Megan, she's a history student, and Mark, a geography undergraduate. And basically, they want to research how streets and the built environment have changed through time. They have social media, they have interactive touch phones, they don't like technology and programming, so that's key to remember. But they're really comfortable using internet applications such as Google Maps. 
So now we have an understanding of our user and what they're comfortable with doing, we can actually start to build our project and build our software according to those users and according to our users' stories. So the next step was to develop a user experience vision. So what vision we wanted our user to experience. So we wanted them to be able to view and link together different types of data. So that's our photographs, our historical maps, our locations of the different bombs that fell. And we want to aim it at students and citizen researchers like yourself. We want to explore and discover where the bombs fell in an interactive environment available on the web or on your mobile phone. And we want to, be, to do this for the first time, so it's unique. Um, access to archive content that hasn't been done before and that links together all this information in a new way. And the most important thing that we wanted to make sure is that the software that we developed was useful and usable. Because if our software wasn't useful or usable, then you yourselves or my students, if they couldn't find out what to do in a few minutes, they wouldn't, they wouldn't use it. And in fact, in computer development, there's um, something called a child of 10 test. Um, I think Al Gore has mentioned it in the past. And basically, it's a technique where you put a child of 10 in front of a computer and you ask them to achieve something with, with your tools that you've developed in 10 minutes. And you look and explore and see what they've achieved. And hopefully, it's what you want them to do. And if you can find that somebody can use your software in that short space of time, then you have something that's usable. And then the next step, if you, you don't want to make something that's usable unless it's useful, so it needs to be relevant. So just a bit of background about the bomb census maps. You've seen all this. We've selected the actual maps as our data for this, for this example. And there are two different types of maps. You have aggregate maps of the nightly bomb raids that were dropped during the Blitz, approximately. And you have map sheets for Region 5, because at the time, the UK was divided into different civil defence regions. So we've selected in the project to use Region 5. And then you also have weekly records. And the weekly records have a lot more data in them. They show you the day of the week <coughs> that the bombs fell. And they also tell you what type of bomb they were and whether they were exploded or unexploded. But for our time period, just from the October to June, there are over 500 different map sheets for Region 5. And it's a very time-consuming process to take a paper map and turn it into digital data. So we wanted to prove our concept first. So we took nine map sheets for central London and extracted the data from those nine map sheets. So in the website, you can see these two different types of data, as well as the data from the first night of the Blitz, because that's available in the Guardian data store. So we've used that and integrated that as well. So there are three different data types in, in the project. So this is just a map showing you the extent of Region 5. And then this is a sample of the bomb maps that were um, classified as secret and then declassified in 1972. And there we have a zoom in of the area around Fleet Street and Hoburn. And you have different types of bombs. The red marks represent parachute mines and the black uh, high explosive and oil bombs. And so 
the big step is to go from this paper map and turn it into a point location in a, in a digital mapping environment. Um, and of course, this is the example of a weekly map. So each different point represents a different day of the week, each different <coughs> colour, sorry. So you can see the different clusters, which I find quite interesting because on here, which you don't see on the aggregate maps, on the weekly map, you can have a sense of the, the actual clustering of the bombs that fell, and you can see the lines as the planes fly over and where they drop their bombs. So the little links together show that they were all dropped in one session. So that's why we thought it was important to include the weekly maps, but with time and resources available to us, we couldn't actually digitise and capture the data for all 500 at this time. So i just give you some background. I don't want to get into too much technicality, but just to explain how you georeference a map, because it's actually quite interesting. I think it's interesting. Imagine you've got your piece of paper, and you, you can scan it using a flatbed scanner or a, photo, um, a big high-resolution camera. So you take a picture of your map. So now you have a photograph, a digital image. But actually, that's not as useful as it could be if we want to make sure that it's got some geographic coordinates so we can zoom and pan around in, in geographical space. So what we have to do is match it to a digital map that does have these underlying coordinates. So using specialist software called GIS, which is Geographical Information Systems, we take the digital photograph and then we take a geographically referenced image of the same location and we tell the computer that this location on the photograph matches this location in our geographical map that has the coordinates underlying. And you do that a number of times across a big map and the computer will then over, overlay one across the other. And as you can imagine, this isn't without error, so it will stretch the map and deform the map and try and overlay it as best as it can. Otherwise, you would have to redraw everything by hand, which would be quite, quite time-consuming. So you do that for each of the different map sheets. But you can see the park and you can see the historical image that's sitting below the park and you can see the points. So you've now turned your paper map into a digital map. So that's really great. And then what that enables us to do is we can then say, OK, I'm going to capture every single location that represents a bomb. And this is the bit that was time-consuming and which my students had to do. They then had to manually, and this is, again, another introduction of error in the process, they manually had to locate the bombs. So they had to click here and click here and here and here and here, etc. And then every click, a little point would form, and that point has an X and Y coordinate. So now we have a, a point that represents the location of the bomb that fell in our digital map. And now we've created digital data from a paper map. So that's quite useful. So we then wanted to take that information and combine it with other information from London at that time. And there's a really interesting project called the Defence of Britain. It's now no longer active. And it was a really early instance of volunteered geographic information projects 
where the public um, collected information about different defence locations and defence sites that currently exist or used to exist in London that were established to defend London against um, an invasion at the time of World War II. And that information, again, is available in geographic form. So you can see here the map. This boundary here represents the M25. And we have anti-aircraft sites and the big green dots and anti-shipping sites over here um, in the east, towards the east on the coast, and other such things, and anti-tank. There's a line of anti-tank defences in south, in south London. And we thought, okay, that's, that's quite interesting because some of, those, some of those still exist today. So they'll be able to explore and understand if there are different things in the built environment as they're walking around, what those, what those different defences are, and actually start to build up an, a, a more useful experience, a more enriched experience. So we took that information and we also combined it with the People's War Archive. So what they have is a series of, of memories of people's experiences during World War II. And it's all in text, and none of it ha actually has a spatial reference. So what we had to do is to develop a programme that would take the text from the BBC website, and it would then take that text and search <coughs> for different places within that text and then be able to assign that with a geographic location. And as you can imagine, those kind of programs, they're not as accurate as they can be because they're still in development. It's very difficult to actually identify different places in, um, in a big block of text. And different places, they change over time as well. So it's only as good as the, the repository in which you're using to search through the places. So you can see this story here which is based in Digby Road, we know that we can assign a location based on Digby Road. And then when you're looking through the project, if you're in an area nearby, you can then see and read this story. And as you can see, it really builds up your, your view of what London was like at that time by just reading through this text and this personal account of, of an individual's experience. And again, if you combine that with these images that are available on the Imperial War Museum site, you really start to, to capture London at that time. So what we did is for each of these images, there's a text description. So again, we had to read all of the text and actually try and locate that text in London. So in some cases, there was no ge geographical description and so we randomly assigned them across London so that when you're looking through London, you can start to build an idea. But in other pictures, for, for instance, here, this is Elephant and Castle Tube Station. We know exactly where this is, so we can exactly pinpoint it and give it an, an exact location. So when you're looking at the website, you will see this image if you're around the Elephant and Castle region. And that's people sleeping on, on the stairs in the underground when they're taking shelter through the bombing raids. And here they're, I think, creating allotments on a, on a, a bomb site. I think the most important thing, actually, to point out here, that some people in the media flurry that, that followed the launch of the project, 
is that the bomb locations, they represent a point where a bomb fell. They don't represent a bomb site, as in S-I-T-E, because we don't know from the aggregate maps whether the bomb exploded or not. So we don't have that information captured, and it's another reason why we used the, the project name Bomb Site S-I-G-H-T, because we're not mapping bomb sites across London. We're mapping the location where the bombs fell. So how did we go about developing the website? It was developed on all open source technology, so it's a really low-cost solution, except when you're featured in a global news flurry and the website crashes, but I'll talk more <laughs> about that after. And this, in the media storm that followed, seemed to be an image that was reproduced time and time again. But as cartographers on the project, there were three of us that involved in the project, Dan, Patrick and myself, who, when we create maps, it's called red dot fever, because um, it looks like a measles epidemic. And from a cartographic perspective, that map doesn't provide you with that much information, because you can't see any patterns. You just see this, this mass of red dots. And I was quite surprised that that was the image that the media picked up on. And actually, in our user testing, we, we asked people, because it was a big discussion, well, how can we improve the, the visualisation of this and not make it too computer-intensive on an individual's computer? And actually, through the user testing, they said, no, they actually like this image because it shows you that London was it was covered. There were bombs falling everywhere. So this is the first view that you see. If you've not been to the website before, you see a mass of red dots all, all over London uh, that looks like some epidemic. And then you're able to zoom in using your mouse or the zoom buttons. So if you're unfamiliar with web mapping, what we have done is provide tool tips that tell you what each of the different functions do. So you can zoom in. You can also zoom in by clicking on a location. So we could go to the area around Waterloo, if I remember where Waterloo is. It's here. And as you zoom in, you can see that the, the actual map imagery changes. And that's very important, because at different scales of an interactive map, you want a different visualisation. So if you still had this big mass of little red dots, it wouldn't mean very much. So Yasha spent a lot of time actually designing icons that would then actually have impact and also help you have some meaning behind them. So we have different icons, and if you do need to know what they are, this will tell you. So you have an incendiary oil bomb, high explosive bomb, or parachute mine. And these are the three different types of bombs that are denoted on the, on the weekly and the aggregate maps and then also different icons for the Defence of Britain website data. And then here, what this means is that represents that there are five bombs in this small area, because we wouldn't be able to put five different map symbols all over. It would look really messy and it would confuse, confuse our users. So you click on it and it spreads out, and then you're able to click on the bomb and find, and find out information. And actually, I had a couple of emails about this information that was presented on the website. 
because we've had to reverse, it's called reverse geocoding. We have our points with our location and we didn't have an address. And we needed to link to an address field and we had to use an open source address field because we otherwise, if you're using a commercial data set, um, then you have to pay for it. And we wanted to create a low cost solution. So in some cases, these addresses here are, are, are not quite accurate, but that's because it's coming from a different data source. And then you can find out more about this area. And then you can read, you can see the map, um, you can see the images, and you can actually start to read the stories. And you can then explore if you want to see the statistics for Lambda here. And then we can go back to the map. And you can change the different map views here. So we want to look at the weekly map view and you get a graph. And you, then you, if you want to see the historical map, you can pop it on so you can actually see. And that historical map has um, lots of information that's um, on it. And each di for different parts of London, we have different, different historical maps. They're not all produced at the same scale because they had to use whatever maps were available during the, during the war. So some maps are, have more detail than others, but it's really useful to see what, what the predicted um, sites that they were trying to target, actually. I found it really, really interesting. Um, okay, I'm worried that I'm going to run out of time. So... Um, So again, the, the Android mobile app, we chose the Android because we didn't have enough resources to develop an iPhone and an Android. So we chose one, and um, yeah, it just became the, the, the Google, it's functioned by Google, sorry. And we also used, this is the one piece of software that we had to pay for, which is Wikitude, and that's the augmented reality library that we used, so that you can hold up your phone and actually view uh, where the bombs fell in, 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 in real space. So you can download the app from the Google Play Store. Um, I, you can read the information if you just go there. And again, we had to strip out some of the information that's in, contained in the app because it's very difficult to present. We had great discussions about how, how you would download a memory because they're very, very long. And if you just show a snippet, it actually does a disservice to the memory. So in, uh, the, in this instance, in the first version, what you can do is just see the bomb locations and the historical map. So you can see, again, the same as the website, each different location of the bombs that fell. You can then switch to camera view and you can hold up your phone and you can see where the bombs fell. So the larger the icon, the nearer the bomb it is. And you can also see over here that there's a radar that represents 300 metres from where you're standing and it shows you roughly and the location where the bombs fell in that 300 metre radius. <coughs> and again, if you click on the icon, you can zoom in and see the historical map and you can see the bombs, this is the bomb that you clicked on, and then all the other bombs that fell around. So 
it took us by surprise. None of us have been involved in a project that's had such media attention. Um, and I think we can confidently say that it went viral. Uh, and it was actually, I think, because of social media through Twitter, no less, that people found out about the project. And various celebrities and journalists tweeted. We, at the height of the media interest, when we were on the front page of the BBC and the Daily Mail, we went from 40 visitors when we quietly rolled out and we didn't really tell anyone about it and we waited to see if people would find out about it on their own. It's called a snowball effect. And then we went to six per second. So you can imagine. And we're running on a university server and we had no... We did not develop the system to have that kind of usage. So at one point when we were on the front page of the Daily Mail... The system died, I think. Maybe died is a, is a wrong word because it was still there, but it wasn't returning any information to our users. And actually, we were contacted by a company called Cloudflare. And what they do is they provide like a mirror of the website so that we were able to, to then allow our users to see the different web pages. So a big shout out to Cloudflare. And it was a very surreal experience because I was interviewed at six months pregnant um, in our kitchen by BBC and ITV and Reuters. And it was, academics are normally quite shy and I found it a bit overwhelming and I didn't know what to do really. So, and we were featured on the BBC, the Sky, Australia, Al Jazeera, Just Spiegel, the list goes on. It's quite impressive. Yeah, it's quite impressive. And I think it just shows that we developed a site that is useful. It, we developed something that was usable and user-friendly. And also that this topic is still relevant and has real relevance to not just academics, but to people all over the world, because it, it really had a big impact on, in the shape of how Europe and the world developed, not just at a local level, so perhaps we were naive when we didn't think that actually it would become a global phenomenon. So just some impact in numbers. I don't know if you're interested in this. We were featured in over 70 different global and media organisations around the world, including in, in print that I can't read because the language is... So, yeah, it was really... I'm still overwhelmed by the interest. On, this, on our busiest day, we had nearly 190,000 users. We've still had, we're averaging around 1,500 to 4,000 users a week. So it just goes to show that whilst we had this enormous spike in, in unique visitors during the media storm, that actually what we have is built something that's sustainable and still relevant despite, uh, or even though that media attention has faded away. People are still using the website. They're still finding the information on it relevant and useful. So I think what we've developed is something important. And I really hope that we will find more funding in order to build on it and to integrate, for example, the BC4 forms that tell you about the number of casualties and the number of deaths and the size of the bombs and things like that. But as with all academic funding, 
when one project finishes, you have to then search for more funding, so it's not an automatic given that there'll be money in order to develop Bombsite further. There are a number of limitations. For example, the, there, I've talked about some of the um, accuracies and inaccuracies that are introduced along the way. And this, if you're using this site for research, you have to remember that we have automated some process, we've done some processes by hand, and at each stage that introduces some error, which is very difficult to quantify, so we can't give a percentage of accuracy. The maps were even created at a time when there was great stress going on in the country, so I'm sure that there are some locations that haven't been marked on the original maps as well. So we can't definitively say that this is an atlas of all the bomb locations for, for that time period, but we've done our best to capture from very difficult maps. If you imagine the maps are black and white, the bombs are marked in black as well, sometimes trees are marked in black, it's quite dif difficult to rep, is it a tree, is it a bomb? And after a while you, get, you become quite an expert at knowing, no, that's definitely a circle or that's not. But, so that's why this information and the information that we've produced is for non-commercial use. It's for researchers and citizen researchers who are interested and engaged with, with this type of information. Further work, there's lots of it. What we thought would be really useful, and I've been quite surprised and moved, I've received a lot of letters from people that talk about their own accounts that have included photographs. Because of the baby, I've not had time to respond personally to, ev to anyone yet, but I do intend to do that. And it's really made us think about how we should move forward in the future and enable something called a crowdsourcing function. So that would allow people to go online and actually upload their own memories. Maybe it's through audio, it doesn't have to be type. But as long as we can add a geographic location, we can build it into our system. But of course, that, that takes a lot of work, so we need future funding. But I think if, they could, if you could add your own memories, your family's memories, add in your own photographs, maybe you have some maps. So to provide all this information and to build up even a citizen's archive, not just the, the National Archives data, we, we can really add and enrich our understanding and our view of London at that time. So there have been lots of project outcomes. I was talking with Andrew earlier and last year there were around 860 individual views of the different bomb census maps here physically in the archives. So we can quite confidently say that we've opened up and made accessible um, the actual bomb census maps to a wider audience. So nearly, I think, over 400,000 people have viewed the site since it launched. We've created a geographic framework for studying the impact of the bombing the, and because I, my, my interest really grew from this desire to look at how poverty has changed. As a geographer interested in social and urban issues in London, I wanted to know how, how has the spatial distribution of poverty changed in London through time and what impact did the war have. But in order to do that, you need to collect data to understand how housing patterns have changed. So this is really where the, the project 
succeeded from as well. There's lots of thank yous. We did a lot of user testing here at the archives of various members of staff and various members of the MAP library. So we owe them a great thanks for helping us develop a software tool that's useful and usable by a great many people. Also, to JISC, our funders, the final shout out to them, that, and the anonymous panel from JISC who actually saw the potential in the project. Because it, if it wasn't for them thinking, actually, this is interesting and it's useful, we would never have been able to, to develop the project in any way, shape or form. And particularly Paula and Peter, who have supported the project through its history. Justin and John at Cloudflare, who really helped us out when the project went viral. And Andrew, Laura and Rose at the National Archives, they've really supported the project and, and really helped us to get where we are today and everyone who explored and continues to explore Bombsite. So thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 18th of July 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.